You're listening to Radio Free Philosophy. broadcast of Radio Free Philosophy, we were talking about uh, the empiricists John Locke and George Barclay, and they had some interesting uh, uh, ideas not only on uh, epistemology but also metaphysics, uh, as we saw last time the, the uh, possibility of idealism came up. And now we're going to take a look at an even more radical example of an empiricist named David Hume, who in fact uh, Leads, to, leads us to a more radical metaphysics, the f- metaphysics of phenomenalism. Yeah, Hume is called radical because he took the criteria of Berkeley and, and Locke and used them consistently, rigorously, systematically, and basically eliminated substance. Whereas there was some vestige of substance in both Locke and, and Berkeley, but Hume could see no use for it. Yeah, because he takes the uh, the doctrine of empiricism seriously. If all of our knowledge comes from sense experience, then it seems to follow that if you don't have sense experience of something, you can't have knowledge of it. And for Hume, that seems almost tantamount to saying that there's no sense even talking about that thing, whatever it might be, whether it's substance uh, or, or even things that you're not directly observing, so you can't have knowledge of them. For all intents and purposes, they might not even exist. Sure. For Locke, at least there was some admission of some kind of material substance out there, however unknowable, but, but it was there. And then for Berkeley, there was just mental substance. But Hume takes the um, egocentric predicament one step further. The, the basic predicament is that we only know what we know, say I know, but there's no way I can step outside of myself to verify that. And so essentially, my knowledge isn't worth much. I can't universalize on it. I just know what I know. Right. That was the big problem for, for Locke's theory, as we saw. Uh, if, if you're going to claim that your ideas represent reality, you can only make that claim if you can actually compare your ideas with reality. But we have no way of stepping outside of our own mind to see reality independent of those ideas. And so once you take that problem seriously, you're left either with the untenable claim that there's something out there even though you can't perceive it, or you're left with Hume's alternative, which is all you have are your sensations, and that's as far as you can go. Yeah. For that matter, I can't even be sure that my sensations are the same as your sensations. Exactly, exactly. Because all, even our ideas are based on impressions. And Hume, I mean, it seems like a radical position, but Hume starts with something seemingly innocent enough, the idea that all of our knowledge comes from sense experience. The way he phrases it is, you use the word impressions, which mm-hmm. is his word for sense experience. Our ideas come from impressions. So I have ideas of colors and shapes and sounds and people and desks and chairs. Those all come from impressions, the senses. Sure, and so far, so good. He's, he's still in, in line with the, um, the classic philosophical tradition, going back to Aristotle and Aquinas. Um, and it, you could consider 
Aristotle and Aquinas empiricists, um, Aquinas would say there's nothing in our mind that wasn't first in our senses. But both Aristotle and Aquinas would say the mind can go out and now know reality based on the concepts abstracted by our intellect. We can now know individual things out there. But Hume's not going to let us go that, that route at all. Yeah, Hume discovers uh, somewhat to his dismay that if you ask that question, how is it that you can know reality independent of your senses, it, it seems like there's no answer to that. I mean, he can't find an answer at least. Uh, and so if, if you're going to take the philosophy of empiricism seriously, you have to be prepared to, to face that head on mm -hmm. and maybe accept it that all you've got are your, are your senses. Now, Hume recognizes this, this might not be the easiest idea to swallow. For instance, early on he says, well, you know, this claim that ideas only arise from impressions seems faulty because, after all, can't, can't you think of a golden mountain? And there's never been anything like that in sense experience. So doesn't that show that some of our ideas come from a source other than sense experience? Mm -hmm. So how do we explain that? How, how, I mean, I can have an idea of a golden mountain, but there aren't any golden mountains. Sure, like the idea of a unicorn or a pink elephant. Right. It's simply because we cannot verify them, so we can't trust that concept at all. We can have ideas. Um, he called, um, Hume called these um, pr uh, relationships of ideas. Um, for example, two and two are four, or a triangle is a figure with three, a plane figure with three sides. We can have those ideas, but it doesn't necessarily mean they exist in reality. Right. Although you, you might wonder, well, how did we come up with that idea of the unicorn or the golden mountain? Hume says, well, we, we take things that we've gotten from sense experience and combine them in interesting new ways, but the combination doesn't indicate that there's something really out there in existence. I mean, I've seen gold before. I've seen mountains. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, I just put the ideas together. So the real question for Hume is, not where do the ideas come from. That has to be sense experience. It's what happens when we start playing around and combining them. And you mentioned one way of combining them, relations of ideas, he calls it, where the ideas seem to go together as a matter of necessity, like the example of a triangle and three sides. If I'm thinking of a triangle, mm -hmm. I can't help but think it's a three-sided object. But all of our ideas aren't like that. Some of them are just combined uh, as a matter of sense experience perhaps or just as a matter of we just try to combine them in new and interesting ways that don't necessarily relate to sense experience at all. Sure and it, it was Locke who laid the groundwork for this because he shot down all the the, um, the supporting arguments for innate ideas. It just means that the human mind uh, relates ideas in common ways. It doesn't mean the ideas relate to any, represent anything in reality. So the other source of our knowledge would be matters of fact, being a good empiricist, what we can observe with our senses. But since the senses are not always trustworthy, we can't trust our own impressions, so we can't have any absolute knowledge. For example, we thought for, when, for the longest time that, um, that there were natural laws out there that heavenly bodies and, and uh, atoms followed. But we discussed already the, the uncertainty principle of Heisenberg so if we could be so wrong about something like that, what else could we, could we be wrong about? And uh, Hume does seem to be, at least in some preliminary sense, calling into question the same things that uh, quantum physics calls into question centuries later. Uh, Hume is in the 18th century, and the quantum 
uh, physicists don't come along until the 20th century, but Hume does seem to be making the same kind of criticism about these universal laws of nature. I mean, take, for example, something like causality, which seems obvious. If I throw a ball up in the air, gravity's going to cause it to fall to the ground. So I do that 10 times, and so how can I be certain that the 11th time I do it, it's going to have the same result? Well, the answer is I can't. I mean, the past doesn't necessarily dictate what has to happen in the future. And that's what um, quantum physicists would say today, too. We can't be certain that a sequence that always happened in the past will happen again in the future. We just can't be certain. Practically, it works for us. Um, like water freezing at 32 degrees. We observe that it does. But we can't count on it always doing that. Practically, we can. But it's not certain knowledge. It's inductive reasoning. Yeah, once you start asking the question the way even Descartes was asking it, how can we have certainty with our knowledge, uh, and you start asking that question from the empiricist standpoint, you almost are inevitably drawn to Hume's answer, which is you can't have certainty about knowledge if it relates to sense experience. You can have certainty about some things. I can be absolutely certain that triangles are three-sided objects, but that's true by definition. Right? That doesn't say anything about whether there really are any triangles or not. But what about something that has to do with sense experience, like the sun's going to rise tomorrow was a favorite example of Hume. Yes. Um, I can't absolutely guarantee the truth of that, even though it's happened millions of times in the past. Nor could you guarantee it's, it's contradictory, the sun will not rise tomorrow. Yeah, Hume says uh, the, the nature of matter as a fact is such that the contrary of everyone is possibly true. So I can just as easily maintain the claim the sun will not rise tomorrow. There's mm -hmm. nothing contradictory about that. Mm -hmm. It sounds strange. It sounds right. We feel right. like it has to be false. Mm -hmm. uh, Hume is not saying, of course, that the sun won't rise tomorrow. He's just saying that it's certainly possible to hold that idea consistently uh, in your mind. Mm -hmm. And sense experience doesn't do anything to dissuade us of that because we haven't had sense experience of what's going to happen tomorrow. Right. And so that the long-vaunted principle of causality upon which so much metaphysics depends. Aristotle's proof of, or Aquinas' proof of the existence of God, um, based on Aristotle's notion of causality, is now destroyed. Yeah, and this certainly had serious uh, implications for, for scientists. Uh, even into the 20th century, there was a famous uh, scientist named Ernst Mach. In fact, he was the one that figured out how fast sound goes, which is why we refer yeah, to the right. speed of sound as Mach, mm -hmm. Mach 1. Um, he basically said the same thing that Hume was saying. I mean, you can't infer that there are universal laws of nature. You can't be sure that what your little bit of the cosmos is doing is the same thing as every other bit of the cosmos is doing. So all scientists can do is observe and make notations based on those observations. But in terms of formulating any general principles, which is exactly what Newton said existed, you can't do it, not not on the basis of observation, which is, of course, the the basis of empiricism. You like to use, um, in your teaching, you like to use the billiard balls as a, uh, a way of illustrating Hume's critique of causality. Would you want to elaborate yeah, on that? Yeah, it's an interesting thought experiment, and uh, Hume himself was, as I understand it, uh, quite a, a deft pool player, maybe even a pool shark. <laughs> and so you, you, you are at the pool table and you ask the question, well, I've got the cue ball and I'm aiming it towards the eight ball and the cue ball is moving and that's all I know about the two balls. Ball A, the cue ball is moving towards the eight ball 
and it makes contact. Now, as a result of that contact, what has to happen? Well, Hume says, well, I can think of many things that might happen, but there's no one of them that necessarily has to happen. And so that illustrates this notion of, of his skepticism of, of causality. I mean, there's lots of things that could happen to that ball, but no one of them absolutely has to happen. Or another example he, he uses, which is very similar, is, I mean, every year, come winter time, at least once or twice in the winter, it, it snows. Now, every other time in the past when I go outside and catch snowflakes on my tongue, for instance, they're always cold. But who's to say the next time they come down, they're hot as embers? You can't be certain that that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So this this notion that the past tells us something definite about the future is is, is thrown out almost entirely for Hume. As a philosophical matter, now as you mentioned earlier, as a practical matter, we depend on these things happening in a regular fashion. And I think in one sense, Hume is maybe one of the first philosophers to come up against this problem of how do you be true to your philosophical principles at the same time living in the practical world. Mm -hmm. And for Hume, they're, they're very different. For Descartes, they seem to be one and the same, even for Locke. Right. But for Hume, there's a huge split here. You, you can't live in Hume's world in a practical sense. But then again, the trouble is you can't refute Hume's world. Or can't. It no. seems impossible. As a, as a below-average pool player myself, I can assert that you can never count on winning. It's never certain. Right. It's never entirely certain where those billiard balls are going, <laughs> right. even if you intend for them to go in a certain direction. Indeed. Now, if that's the case with causality, what about the self? And perhaps that would be a good time for a break. And then we'll take on uh, self and substance. Mm -hmm. to the philosophy of knowledge, metaphysics, was the concept of substance. This, this uh, ephemeral reality that underlies all material things and even mental things, like the mind. Descartes divided the world into material substance and mental substance. And central to the concept of philosophy, metaphysics that is, central to that has been the notion of um, the self, central to epistemology. It, it's, it's hard to imagine philosophy without a philosopher philosophizing, that is, the self. Now Hume is going to make some real strong inroads into both those concepts. Yeah, and he's, he seems to be... Uh in some sense troubled by the conclusions he's drawing, but then on the other hand he doesn't see any way out of them either. 
uh, that substance of a material variety and substance of a mental variety are both equally untenable. It shouldn't be surprising to us that he agrees with Barclay's elimination of material substance because he takes the same line of reasoning. I mean, you have to perceive something in order for for it to exist, Barclay says, and Hume sees that as a, a central tenet of empiricism, and by that logic, material substance has to go by the board. Mm-hmm. But then Hume asks a very interesting question in his Treatise of Human Nature, which he confessed that nobody even read, but it, uh, it, it was still an important work in, in philosophical terms. He asked the question, if all of our ideas come from impressions, from what impression does the idea of the self arise? And it's interesting how he, he, he phrases his answer because it's very first personal. He's not saying that nobody has an impression of the self. He's simply saying, when I try to find impressions of myself, all I ever run into are impressions that the self has. I, I, sensations, I feel you know, heat, cold, pain, pleasure, love, hatred. Mm-hmm. But those aren't things that we conventionally think of as the self. We think of those as things the self has. The self mm-hmm. feels pleasure, feels pain, feels love, feels hate. But the self has got to be back there somewhere. But you can't get to it. No. All you can get to are the impressions. Right. Where is it? Where is the self? Where is the ego? Um, all we are are, are are memories, really. Um, distant memories and more recent memories. Uh, the past can be two seconds ago, but it's still a past. We're remembering. And we remember that we remember that we remembered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so we are... We are histories. But, but when we start looking for the we or the I, uh-huh. it seems like there's nothing there very, but the impressions. Very That's elusive, it. exactly. And so Hume seems to be forced to conclude uh, you either got to say there is no self at all or you have to say the self just is that, that collection of impressions, what Hume famously referred to as a bundle of perceptions. A bundle of perceptions. It's not, not a very romantic way of thinking about it. It doesn't seem to give us much self-worth, but really... Hume is saying nothing that uh, Buddhism hasn't been teaching for 2,000 years before that. Namely, the, the, the self is nothing but a, um, a, once again, a bundle of perceptions. In fact, Buddhism teaches that there are five bundles that we mistakenly call the self, but they're all ephemeral qualities, and none of them are really related to each other except in our perception. Yeah, I often wonder if, if Hume was at all familiar with, with Buddhism because his ideas are so closely linked. I mean, there's a central famous notion in Buddhism that the the, uh, the self is essentially empty. Empty, the great, uh, yes. There's a technical meaning for that in Buddhism, but it's not at all dissimilar from Hume's point. I mean, there is no underlying, objective, unifying thing that is the ego. That's right. And what makes Buddhism so difficult for the Western world is the emptying of self completely. That to realize that there, there is nothing but emptiness at the heart of your perceived self. Now, this is difficult for Westerners because we're all about the self. Yeah, this is uh, often referred to, you, you hear terms like the me generation, mm-hmm. uh, self-actualization. Uh, yes. self is a big thing. Uh, self-help sure. is a big growth industry. We're it's all concerned about our, our self-esteem, our self-worth. Right, so exactly. It all comes back to that uh, that ego, uh, which might not be there. So Hume is pulling out the underpinnings of the Western world's concept of me. 
it's no no wonder that uh, when when Immanuel Kant first read Hume, he he, he lost sleep. <laughs> he said Hume awoke him from his dogmatic slumber. Right. Uh, Hume himself seemed sort of troubled by these these conclusions. Uh, he, he wrote in his appendix to the Trees of Human Nature that he couldn't quite figure out what was wrong with this idea, but it seemed like there had to be something wrong with it because I mean the, the conclusions are so radical. But then again, he couldn't see any way around it. So he kind of said, well, I guess I just have to live with it. This, this notion that the self is nothing more than the perceptions we have, and that's it. And this view is called phenomenalism. Basically, the idea is all that exists are phenomena, impressions, sense experiences. Mm -hmm. What are they connected to? Well, there's nothing else but the impression, so there's nothing to connect them to. And, and what is it that knows these phenomena? Is it the mind? Is the mind substantial? For you, no. It's just a bundle of perceptions. We can't know the mind. And this is very troubling. Imagine how upsetting it would be for the field of psychotherapy if you had no mind to work on. Yeah, exactly. So it's probably becoming pretty clear why Hume is referred to in, in some corners as a radical empiricist, not just a plain old garden variety uh, empiricist. I mean, you know, imagine a philosopher in the 18th century in England being compared to uh, to a Buddhist. That's that's about as radical <laughs> as you can get in a, in a country as uh, traditional in, it, in at least religious terms as, as England was. Um, well, sure, it's God's in his heaven, all's right with the world. But if there's no substance, if there's no causality, how do you prove the existence of God? How do you know everything's right with the world? We're, we're catapulted into enormous uncertainty about our knowledge. Um, what else is left to destroy? You upset a lot of people. Oh, certainly, yeah. Uh, so much so that uh, when it came time to uh, put a few thoughts down on the question of, uh, of religion, he saved a lot of those to be published posthumously. He was smart enough to know that he was going to ruffle a lot of feathers, uh, so he, he published this uh, famous essay on the immortality of the soul, which he denied. And it was not published until after his death, because probably if it had been published before his death, it might have been the cause of it. Been the cause of an untimely death. death, indeed, indeed. But certainly Hume's uh, uh, criticism of causality has uh, immense implications for the existence of God, because a lot of the arguments for the existence of God are based on this notion of causality. I mean, one of the easiest is the notion that uh, here we are in this world, and the world couldn't have just come from nowhere. Something had to cause it. And so that something must be God, but that integrates the notion of causality. And if you can't be certain about causality, then you can't make those kind of claims. Not that at one all. One thing definitely is necessary to cause another, because you know Hume points out what in the world is causality. But when it comes down to it, it's based on three three elements. You've got to have a correct temporal succession. Cause always comes before effect. Mm -hmm. You've got to have a correct spatial proximity. I mean, cause and effect usually aren't separated by vast distances of space. But those two elements alone aren't sufficient to explain causality. If it were, then you might have a case where I sneeze and the lights go out, and you might assume my sneeze caused the lights to go out. That doesn't make any sense. So there has to be another element, which Hume termed necessary connection. Yes, yes. The problem comes, of course, because if you're an empiricist, you have to take everything from observation 
And while you can certainly observe temporal succession and spatial proximity, we have no way of observing this notion of necessary connection. Sure, there's no way to verify it. Um, for many, for many people, um, temporal succession means um, causality. But there's so many ways to show that's wrong. From the most ridiculous superstitions, like uh, walking under a ladder will bring you bad luck, which a lot of people believe, or a black cat crossing your path makes you have a bad day. We know that's superstition. That doesn't make sense. But a lot of people believe, for example, that, that, that um, lightning causes thunder. Sure. Yeah. But it doesn't. And that's, yeah, that's based on the mistake that you mentioned of thinking that just because one event comes first before a second event, it must be the cause of the second event. That's true in a lot of cases, but not necessarily true in every case. And so Tom, you have to have that notion of necessary connection. Yes, yes, but there's no way to guarantee it. And Thomas Aquinas gave so much um, philosophical support, rational support to the faith of Christianity by reassuring Christians that, that their faith was not was not a leap, a blind leap, but they, their belief in God could be demonstrated. It, was, it could be shown to be rational based, on, for the most part, on the principle of causality. But when Hume removes that, uh, for a lot of Christians, this is a real threat because now they, they could only rely on blind faith. Yeah, it caused a lot of distress, certainly. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, in the early 1800s, uh, an Anglican named uh, William Paley tried to have a go at responding to Hume by writing a work called Natural Theology, which mm -hmm. we'll probably talk about in a, in a later broadcast. And that was a deliberate attempt to respond to Hume's criticisms because he recognized, as many did at the time, that if Hume was allowed to stand, that spelled the end of any reasoned approach to, uh, to religion, to Christianity in particular. Uh, you could still have faith, but faith needs to be supported by something. Uh, even people who say they, they have faith and that's it, they usually base it on some, some kind of evidence. Mm -hmm. And if you've got no evidence at all, which Hume could not find any evidence at all. Yeah. That's, again, he attacks the very underpinnings of Western culture, which is Christianity. So to, sh to show how radical he was, I'd like to read a quote from him from his essay on human understanding. This is how dangerous a man he was to contemporary culture. He says, when we run over libraries, persuaded of these principles, what havoc must we make? If we take in our hand any volume of divinity or school metaphysics, for, ex for example, let us ask, does it contain any abstract reasoning concerning quantity or numbers? No. Does it contain any experimental reasoning concerning matter of fact and existence? No. Then commit it to the flames, for it can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion. Yeah, that's, that's very radical. radical. That's book burning. Yeah. He's essentially saying, uh, you know, if books don't contain useful knowledge, burn them. Burn them, exactly, exactly. And how many books could meet these criteria? Yeah, it's a pretty stiff, uh, stiff standard to meet. Certainly, uh, many works of even prior philosophers we've discussed would go by the board Absolutely. based on that uh, mm -hmm. criterion. So Hume is uh, definitely a, a radical. And once again, if 
if we get back to our theme of the power of ideas, this idea could wreak havoc with so much established religion, established ways of thinking. Um, it could be, it's very dangerous and shook up a lot of people. Now, you know, given, given the radical nature of Hume's ideas and the potential havoc that they could have wreaked, we might want to ask the question, well, how come none of that happened? I mean, civilization didn't seem to come to an end as a result of Hume's ideas. So that must mean that somebody out there attempted and maybe even succeeded at refuting some of Hume's central ideas. Sure, most people in the West were not terribly moved by Hume, but they couldn't refute him. They weren't going to back off from their traditional religion, their traditional metaphysics, and traditional way of thinking of things about in terms of causality. But there was no real successful refuting going on. It was pretty hard to take on you. But there was one man, an isolated city in Prussia, who read Hume with consternation and said, this must be refuted. Yeah, he saw the, the implications of it, and he saw that it had to be refuted eventually. I mean, you can't simply let an idea like that float around without being refuted and think it won't eventually have consequences. Eventually, it certainly would have had devastating consequences, if not for that, uh, that lonely fellow who, um, as the story goes, his neighbors were able to set their watches by his uh, methodical mm -hmm. afternoon walks and, in and Königsberg. And who never left his hometown. Yeah, but he changed the world. Yes. Talking about Immanuel Kant, and we'll be talking about him next time on Radio Free Philosophy.